The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 251. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in to Dose of Leadership. Yet another episode, episode 251 can't believe this has been going on for three years. The show continues to grow and gain in popularity, and I appreciate your support. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with your coworkers. Let them know about Dose of Leadership. And if you're brand new to the show, we talk about leadership here because it's central to everything that we do. It impacts every aspect of our life. Somebody's looking to you for influence and guidance and how well you understand leadership, how well you intentionally apply it to your everyday life ultimately determines how successful and how significant your life is going to turn out. That is why we talk about leadership. That's why it's important to everything that we do. And again, hopefully Dose of Leadership is one of the many resources you're tapping into in your daily leadership journey. And man, it is a journey, is it not? It's a daily struggle. It's a daily grind. It's an intentional grind. It's doing the ordinary stuff that no one really thinks about and doing it consistently time and time again. Over and over, doing it better than everybody else, pursuing excellence. All of that is wrapped up in Dose of Leadership, and I'm so happy that you're tuning in. If you're finding some value in Dose of Leadership, I set up a way you can support this show. I don't do advertising on the show. I've been doing it for three years. We continue to grow. But if you can find the time, I would be so appreciative. You can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash Leadership. You can support this show directly, or you can go to my website. You can find the banner that says support us on Patreon, or you can find it in the menu item as well. You click on that. It's pretty self-explanatory. You can donate any amount that you want, and any amount would be greatly appreciated. Dan Berkowitz, thank you so much, my latest Patreon supporter. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting this show. I really do appreciate it. All right, great show today. Steve Forbes is back on the show. This is a little different than most shows. This isn't so much about personal leadership development and growth, but it is about his latest book, Reviving America. And I love Steve Forbes. And the reason why I have him on the show, if you remember from the intro of this show, it's the pursuit of common sense is one of the applications or one of the reasons for doing this show. And I think Steve Forbes is the king of common sense. I've been a fan of him forever. I'm not a big political junkie or political hack. Um, I do care deeply about this country. I am concerned about where this country is headed. And sometimes I get overwhelmed. And I'll be quite honest with you, why I started the show is because I was kind of tapped into your traditional media outlets. I was getting the news just from the standard sources. And everything I saw was just so gross. And I tapped into this show, and it's been great because I'm surrounding myself with people who are enthusiastic, who are positive about the future. And... This has been very therapeutic for me for doing this show, to be quite honest. And when I read Steve Forbes' book, 
reviving America. And again, when I look on the outset, I was thinking, huh, is this going to interest me? Because they talk about repealing Obamacare, replacing the tax code, and reforming the Fed. Those are the three things he talks about in the book. And normally I'm thinking, okay, this is going to kind of, I'm going to glaze over when I see this. But I got to tell you, reading this book, Reviving America, gave me a great sense of hope. And I got to thank Steve Forbes for writing this book and his co-author, Elizabeth Ames, did a great job. And I highly encourage you to go out there and read this book. It's an it's an easy read. It's a common sense read. And it gives you a sense of hope and all this kind of chaos and bureaucracy and the circus sideshow that we're seeing in this political season. Um, it's a great dose of common sense. And I got to thank Steve Forbes for writing this book. And I'm glad that he came on the show and so grateful that we talked about it. And so we talk about those things. We talk about Obamacare. We talk about replacing the tax code and reforming the Fed. And trust me, you're going to enjoy this conversation. You're going to learn something from it. I learned something from the book. I learned something from the conversation having uh, Mr. Forbes on the show. So without further ado, here he is, the one and only Steve Forbes, back again on Dose of Leadership. Well, Mr. Forbes, it's an honor to have you back on Dose of Leadership. Welcome back to the show, sir. Good to be back. Thank you. I got to tell you, the timing is great to have you on the show. I got to personally tell you, I'm kind of in a a funk. I'm kind of scared, actually, when I look at the news today. As we're recording today, if you look at the news, you got people lining up around corners buying buying gold. I mean, growth is slowing. The, The monetary pump priming that we've seen over the past, I don't know, eight years has proven to be a disaster. You know, the banking's taking a beating, China's slowing down, energy prices are collapsing. What's going on out there? Uh, what's going on is that uh, policymakers uh, don't know what they're doing, and they don't uh, make uh, corrections or uh, changes even when what they've been doing hasn't worked. Uh, that's one reason why we wrote this book, Reviving America, hit on three big uh, things that need to be done here in the U.S., uh, repealing Obamacare and replacing it with a real patient control, turning what looks like a hopeless liability into the greatest dynamic growth industry ever, uh, getting rid of our horrific tax code and replacing it with a simple flat tax where you could literally uh, do your uh, tax return on a single sheet of paper or with a few keystrokes on a computer, and uh, having the Federal Reserve drastically reformed uh, so that we can have a stable dollar again and credit markets that function properly. Yeah, what and I, uh, when when you don't have a f- properly functioning credit market, when you have an anti-growth tax code, when you have a health care uh, system that uh, puts burdens instead of being opportunity, uh, then you get the kind of stagnation we have today. Yeah, and what's a great and you know, I, I said I was in a funk, and I'm, I'm reading Reviving America, and I get hopeful again, and I, and I mean that with all sincerity because – you take from my vantage point, I look at all these things and it just seems so overwhelming. And I got to be honest with you, sometimes I look at it and I say, what is the point? No one's even doing anything. But you break it down into, you know, focus on the first three areas. It's not the only thing we need to do, but at least it's a starting point. And uh, what I appreciate, particularly about looking at the healthcare thing, uh, breaking it down to make it a more privatized system, having the taxes be a flat tax, and then revising the monetary policy. All that stuff is kind of overwhelming for the everyday Joe like myself, but it makes perfect sense when you break it down in your book, and that's what I appreciate it, about it. Um, but Thank you. L- let's talk about the, the first one, the, re- the healthcare piece, because you know, particularly the last eight years, it's still unpopular, and I'm we're so frustrated. And I guess that's probably why we're seeing the political climate that we see with with 
it's Trump kind of rising and, and Sanders rising, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But it's frustrating that no one seems to, um, even on the Republican or conservative side, seem to fully understand how to fix it. Why do you think that is? It is, is it a lack of courage or is it a lack of understanding? I think it's a partially a lack of understanding. We've grown up with this a peculiar system, and we don't realize how strange it is. I think, as we do in the book, you have to ask yourself, why do we have a health care crisis? not the overall quality of health care in this right. country. It, it, uh, people say, experts say, well, we want more of it. People like me are getting older, therefore uh, it becomes uh, unavailable and too expensive. And yet the, they, they never bother to ask, why is demand for health care, growing demand considered a crisis, when growing demand for anything else in our economy is considered a fantastic opportunity? I, yeah, I uh, People want more apps. Writers glad to help you out. You want more cars. Detroit and others will be glad to come to your assistance. And the reason we have that situation with health care, where demand is a crisis, is because we don't have real free markets. And the proof of it is if you go to a hospital or clinic and ask in advance what something costs, what a treatment costs, you get a strange look because either that means you're uninsured or you're just plain crazy. Why would you want to know the price? And in every other part of the economy, that's the first thing you want to know. What am I getting for my money? And uh, so you have these third-party payers dominating the system, uh, insurers, uh, government, employers, and the c- consumer, the patient, is not the real customer. And uh, all you have to do is go to a hospital, as we point out in the book, not even the crummiest motel in the world would dare put you in a room with another uh, guest with a, maybe a, a curtain in between. Yeah, uh, They wouldn't give you a robe that looked like it was cast off from a Salvation Army dumpster and yeah. <laughs> things like that. Well, we've so got... uh, we, we, what we propose is uh, start to make changes to get a real uh, consumer market, patient-controlled market, and get real innovation. We create more health care at less cost like we do with the rest of the economy. Yeah, and it's, you point out so well in the, what I really resonated with me. You gave the examples, and it's so true. We look at like LASIK surgery or even plastic surgery, which isn't really covered on most of our health plans. And, and we've kind of just assumed that it's so expensive we have to have insurance. But as you point out, look at how the cost has dramatically uh, become somewhat affordable for almost everybody with LASIK eye surgery and the plastic surgery. Just in the last 10 years, look how the prices have dropped because it's quasi, for the most part, running on a free market system, correct? Uh, That's right. You don't have the disconnect, uh, the barrier between provider and consumer. So in the case of uh, cosmetic surgery, unless it's a result of a disease or accident, uh, it's uh, you and the provider. And so uh, the provider has every incentive to make it more attractive to you. You scope it out like you do anything else. A LASIK surgery, again, you don't have that disconnect. So uh, providers have every incentive to make it more affordable to you, more attractive to you. Uh, we point out that our publisher, Rich Carlgaard, uh, got the surgery done about 12 years ago. He said it cost about $5,000. Today he said he could probably get uh, it done for $2,500, uh, about half the cost and uh, probably a better procedure. So where do we start? Obviously it takes some, some of the proper leadership in Washington, but how do – To me, it seems like a huge barrier or something that would be almost low-hanging fruit is if we could create a national market, if we could at least stop some of these kind of, uh, I got to buy it within my state and kind of reduce some of the borders. Is that a, a, to me, that seems like low-hanging fruit. Why don't we, why aren't we getting that done? 
uh, because uh, the, the, everybody has an interest in keeping things as they are. That's the problem with politics is uh, it's very hard to change things in the marketplace. If you have really uh, free markets, uh, anyone can come in and uh, try to do something new, disruptive, uh, do something better. And you know, the music industry did not like the web. Uh, they uh, resisted right. initially with Steve Jobs having the uh, iPod and buying uh, songs and, uh, as singles instead of in albums. But uh, the, the consumer's been uh, very grateful for that. So you do start with the nationwide shopping, have hundreds of companies compete for your business. Uh, insurers and uh, providers, uh, hospitals would go across state lines and try to provide networks and the like. You'll have some providers say you can uh, take our insurance to any hospital you want and uh, get real competition. And that's just for starters. Uh, another thing that we point out is that you should have hospitals and clinics uh, be required to post prices for all their uh, treatments yeah. and uh, services. So if a hospital charges, one hospital charges $3,000 for an MRI or $10 for a, uh, an aspirin, another hospital charges $500, uh, since more and more people are being hit with co-pays and higher deductibles, uh, they can see where can we get more value for our money. Uh, and have hospitals post each month how many patients die from infections received at the hospital after they were admitted. You know, no restaurant chain could have uh, could be killing people with, through food poisoning and <laughs> right. not have a national outcry. Right. And yet in hospitals, thousands of patients die each year from infections received. Now, in some cases, uh, patients are so frail or they have uh, certain illnesses where they are going to be susceptible to infections. But in a lot of cases, it's just not uh, having a, the right kind of a cleanliness in the environment. So people right. ought to be able to see that. How about getting rid of these certificates of need? Uh, you know, if McDonald's wants to put a restaurant across from uh, Chick-fil-A or uh, Burger King, it doesn't have to go and get permission from a central authority. It just does it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, that's Why not the same thing in uh, medical care. That surprised me when about the certificate of needs. I mean, I always wondered why it was more difficult to, to build hospitals. But uh, where did that originate from? What was the original intent of a certificate of need? What were they trying uh, to prevent? Because, because, the, because of the third-party payer system, mm. uh, you receive revenue not by satisfying the customer, i.e. the patient, but uh, through uh, what you negotiate with the insurance company. Right. So, uh, so uh, uh, when, when third-party payer, uh, if you put up another hospital, all they see is uh, you're uh, uh, driving up costs mm. and, uh, from, for the, to the third-party payer. Uh, whereas in any other uh, economy, part of the economy would be seen as a good, great competition. And uh, and that's why we got to get that patient control. So you have these it's a Soviet-style system just I know. the Fed is running today. It's crazy. And, uh, and uh, you know, why, why shouldn't you be able to buy the health insurance you want, your own particular needs? If you had a truly competitive market, which we don't today, uh, you would have uh, companies offering you very cheap, a catastrophic insurance, uh, and in this case, a higher deductible would mean that uh, you're getting very cheap and a, a very cheap insurance, and uh, your other medical costs are coming down. Whereas today, in the crazy market that we have, uh, you have the opposite. You uh, it's hard for individuals to buy it. You're, uh, you get a big deductible, but you can't access a lot of uh, doctors and, and clinics and 
specialist. Uh, so it, you, you end up paying more, even if the premium subsidized. What good is that if you have a five thousand or three thousand dollar deductible? Right, exactly right. And I always I never really fully understood why you know exactly right. If you had the kind of um, freedom to choose, and if you're young, if you're twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, that's really probably all you need is a catastrophic insurance policy. You don't need a policy that covers everything a sixty or seventy year old person would need. Well, even uh, even if you had a proper system, uh, people in my age bracket, uh, 60s, 70s, uh, whatever, uh, would have uh, the routine medical expenses would be far lower than they are today. Right. And then, you know, you look at the rise in drug prices. Why are drug prices going up? Well, one reason is the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, their approval procedures are uh, are. are as if this was 1945, not uh, 2015. Right. And uh, very cumbersome, very expensive, and uh, there's a lot of t- t- modern technology that can uh, drastically reduce the expense, shorten the time period. And then uh, the FDA even is choking on uh, proving generics for crying out loud. I know it. And uh, uh, which is ridiculous. So as you know, uh, with the FDA, they have what they call EROM's law. It's more spelled backwards. You know, Moore's <laughs> law in high tech means improving productivity every 18 to 24 months, doubling it, right. nearly doubling it. Whereas in uh, medicine, it's the opposite. It uh, gets more expensive and, and slower every 24 right. months. Well, you know, I think if you hear the argument that uh, there's nobody up on Capitol Hill on the Republican side that, you know, they we want to repeal it. And then the, the all the other voices say, well, you have nothing to offer an alternative with this, what you have outlined in the book, I don't know why um, we couldn't take this blueprint and almost say this is the alternative. I mean, have has anybody on the Republican side looked at what you've proposed here in Reviving America and said this is the plan that I'm going forward, or is it, or is it all over the board? Well, you have uh, various proposals out there, but and I think one of the things that uh, Speaker Paul Ryan's in the process of doing is trying to pull something together. Problem of the challenge is that uh, somebody may like part A but not part B. Right. And so, trying to find something that unites everybody, it may just have to be a case where you pass this piece and that piece. The package is pretty good, but you can't do it as a package. Right. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, it, it reading this, I mean, as overwhelming as it is, I understand the basics, and of course, um, I'm all about capitalism and free markets. But it, when you spelled it out, it it made it. So much more clear for me and more hopeful. I just hope somebody can can take a large part of what you're proposing and do something with it. Obviously, we've got to repeal it and then uh, enact what, what you're proposing. Let's talk about taxes. Yeah, and, and, and then uh, people say, what about people who can't afford it? Well, you know, in food, which is more basic than health care, uh, we have uh, everything from food stamps to uh, food banks to help people who uh, may have problems. Right. Why can't we do the same thing in healthcare? Exactly. Have uh, high risk pools for uh, people who, for whatever reason, uh, can't seem to get coverage. It's not that big a number if you do it right. I know. It. So we, we we can have safety nets and uh, great entrepreneurship productivity. So let's do it. <laughs> I agree with you. Let's talk about taxes. I mean, you have been an advocate when you ran for president in '96 and in 2000. You're the guy out there talking about the flat tax. In fact, I think you were the first guy when I remember back to 96 talking about the flat tax. And here it is again. You even go into more detail in your book 
about why we need this radical tax reform. I think most of us agree with it out there. You gave that great example of how many pages, um, you know, the Gettysburg Address, I think you said it had 272 words, the Declaration of Independence, 1,300 words, the Constitution, I think, what, 8,000? I think this is what I wrote down. And the Bible, all the centuries, 775,000 words. And then we've got the federal tax ruling. And what was the number there? Do you remember what you said in your book? It's like 10, is it 10 million? Is that it's right? 10 million. You've got the code itself, but that's just the beginning. Because then you have several million more words of uh, interpretation that uh, uh, the IRS and uh, any attorney would tell you if you're going to go in the business of uh dealing with taxes, you have to have that. And then you have uh, all the other rulings, uh, which uh, come uh, at least another 5 to 10 million words. It's just as mind-boggling. Oh, that's crazy. Incomprehensible. So I like your idea. I think everybody, most of us out there saying, yeah, of course. I mean, let's let's have a postcard. Let's have one simple page on the internet. I can go fill it out and bam, I'm done. We're talking 17%. I think a lot of us out here, particularly fans of this show, understand the flat tax and, the, and behind it. So let's get to some of the myths behind why. I mean, what, what are the naysayers? What are some of the people saying out there? And, and how would you um, debunk some of those those flat tax myths, if you will? Well, one is that uh, they always say, oh, it's going to help the rich and hurt the poor. We designed it specifically so that everyone gets a tax cut right off the, the, the bat so we don't get in this game of who's helped and who's hurt. Uh, everyone uh, comes out ahead. Uh, they say it will mean that uh, uh, the, the poor are going to have to pay more. No, we have generous exemptions for adults and for children. A family of four, for example, under our plan, would not pay federal income tax on their first $52,800 of salary. They'd pay no tax on their savings and no death taxes. I've always believed you should be allowed to leave the world unmolested by the IRS on the business side, knock it to 17% and allow instant expensing of capital expenditures. And uh, this is, and so uh, that, that myth goes out. Uh, those who love progressivity, we point out with the exemptions, you've got something of a progressive system, but we don't punish success. And we don't, uh, you know, in the current system, you get a 10% raise and the government's tax take, unless you've got a fantastic attorney, goes up 12 to 15%. Yeah. So the government government always grows faster than you do. Right. And uh, that's, that's the way they like it. And then they say oh, it'll hurt uh, home building. No. Uh, by the way, we give people a choice. You know, when we have the new system, you can go with the new system, or if you, you know, lack self-esteem or want to punish yourself, or Fifty Shades of Grey, or that kind of thing, yeah. you can uh, stay with the old system and go through the torture of uh, having <laughs> the return done the traditional way. But this way, you, people people can see for yeah. themselves which, which which one is better. I think that's brilliant because term, you're, you're right. That's brilliant because you can see side by side. Oh, I do it the old way, and I can see what I'd be saving at doing the new way. I guess in, I, I found myself saying this when I was looking at the flat tax, like, oh, man, I'm so dependent upon that mortgage interest rate deduction, right? That That is always what puts me, prevents me from paying a tremendous amount of tax every year. What What do you say to that? I would lose that, but you're saying what I say would, well, for, would be Well, first of all, you're, you're going to uh, still get a tax cut. Yeah. Again, that's why uh, we wanted to make sure – the people who have a mortgage deduction aren't going to say, oh, my gosh, we're, we're, we're going to have a huge tax bill. No, uh, you're not. And uh, and uh, uh, plus, in terms of uh, home building, it stands to reason that if people's incomes are growing, which it would be if you had these reforms like the flat tax, 
economy growing, you get to keep more of what you earn, uh, you're, you're in a position to buy a bigger house. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, if you don't have an income or a big income, you can't buy a big house, at least not unless the government makes you, makes the banks do it. And then uh, another thing they say, oh, we're charitable giving. Well, people in America don't need to uh, be bribed to make a charitable contribution. We point out back in the 1980s when under Reagan, the top rate went from 70% down to 28%. A lot of charitable institutions thought, my gosh, we're going to lose so many contributions because the government's not subsidizing them so much anymore. Well, guess what? Uh, contributions, not only cash contributions, not only went up, but the rate of growth went up. You know, if Americans have more, they give more. Right, exactly right. And that's been proven historically time and time again. The other thing you did so, so brilliantly and what I loved about the section on the tax and a lot I did not know and why we don't talk about this more in the public arena. But we, we have so many examples of the flat tax succeeding in real life. And Hong Kong's a perfect example. And you go into – and this – what I really learned was when you're talking about the Eastern Bloc countries of, of Estonia or the Baltic nations, rather, Estonia, and Latvia, Lithu Lithuania. That was, I didn't know any of that. And that's amazing how you showed how they instituted some flat tax and they pretty much brought themselves on the brink of, of destruction. Absolutely. And uh, 30 countries around the world have done it, over 30. And uh, so this is not a, a pie-in-the-sky theory. This is right. uh, from the real laboratory of life. Uh, but uh, that uh, some some politicians, a lot of them are very slow to understand that. I don't think they want to, some of them, because they know the complexity is power. Yeah, it keeps them – yeah, you're right. I think that's that's the real issue. It's not that they maybe don't understand it. It's that the, there's so much uh, – yeah, like you said, there's power in that complexity. You know, you need no. Yeah, you have to go to them for uh, you know tax breaks. You have to go to them if somebody's proposing something that can hurt you, and so they love it. It's a great source of contributions. Well, I love it. You know, and, and certainly if you look at the field out there right now, I mean, as we're recording this, this is mid-February. Um, we're looking at the field. Um, Fiorina dropped out. Um, Chris Christie dropped out. We still got everybody else. Who do you? Who is closest to what you're proposing of all the candidates up there? Well, they have pieces of it. Uh, for example, Senator Cruz, in terms of uh, the tax side, is a flat tax. He's got a, a, a business transfer tax proposal that, in my mind, is too close to a VAT. So he's going to have to tweak that. But uh, he, he's very much moved in the right direction. He's also moved in the right direction on... Uh, on uh, having a stable dollar and a gold standard. He's far ahead of the others. Um, uh, Marco Rubio was being well advised on health care. Uh, I know that because uh, the fellow works with us, uh, who heads up our opinion channel on Forbes.com, is an expert on health care, and he's advising Rubio. And he knows the importance of markets in, in, in health care. <clears throat> so uh, you, you look around, uh, even Donald Trump's tax plan, even though it's not a flat tax, uh, is, is not a bad plan at all. I've got some other uh, issues with them, but not, not that one. Yeah. And, uh, you, uh, and Jeff Bush has got some interesting ideas, but what they really haven't done yet is put these ideas out in the forefront, lead with them. And uh, and uh, sharpen them even more. 
asking. Jeb Bush has got a very nice tax plan, but it has three rates. And yeah. as we point out in the book, uh, when you put two or more tax rates together, that's like putting two or more rabbits together. And they they multiply. multiply. Right. Right. <laughs> I like that. Because what we're up to, are we up to seven or nine now? What are we up to now? Well, it, it, it's hard to know because when your income goes up, they have what they call clawbacks in the code where you lose some of the deductions you had and certain percentage. And so uh, you have almost infinite brackets in terms of effective marginal tax rates. Right. So it's about seven officially, but uh, infinite in terms of oh, your income goes up a buck, you uh, lose 3% of your deductions, what they call the P's amendment. Yeah. Let's, Loaded with that kind of clawback stuff. Let's talk about the, the third section of your book, the monetary policy. Again, an area that's always kind of been like a Wizard of Oz to me, hard to understand. Uh, glaze over um, so many things that I learned in this section too. I remember back in, I guess it would have been 82, 83, and I had a history teacher. I was in uh, junior high at the time, and he was ranting and raving about going back to the gold standard. And I didn't understand what he meant. And I remember, I'll never forget this. How And I said, why, you know, as, as a young whatever I was, 13 or whatever I was at that age, and said, <laughs> why don't they just print more money, you know? And I had my daughter asking me that the other day, and I, you know, Told, I said, look, the, the more that they print money with this quantitative easing, the more they, the, the less value that dollar becomes. I mean, it becomes less valuable. Are we to? To me, it seems like we're so far gone. How can we possibly get back to the gold standard? Uh, well, it, it, it's not that complicated at all. Now, what uh, the economists don't understand today is that the gold is like a ruler. Uh, we don't think it's unusual. Imagine if they floated the clock. The Fed floated the clock. You have 60 minutes in an hour one day, 30 minutes the next, 85 minutes the day after. Uh, life would be chaotic. Yeah. And uh, and and so uh, you 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 would just uh, fix the time, have a fixed time. Uh, you do the same thing with uh, with with the dollar. You fix it to a particular value. Uh, remember, gold's like a ruler. It was like having 12 inches in a foot, so it has a fixed value. <clears throat> so you can uh, use it more easily and uh, take a few months, but it could be very quick. People think, well, we don't have enough gold to back it. Yeah, that's what and I always thought. You're, yeah. not, you're, 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 you're not using gold as money, coins. Well, if you can, you want you want to, you go, go do so. But it's very cumbersome. It's just making sure that uh, you have a dollar that's fixed in, in value, like a, pick $1,100 or $1,200 an ounce and fix it. All it means is the dollar's worth, uh, you know, uh, one, oh, one, one hundredth, one, one thousandth of one hundred of an ounce. Used to be one thirty-fifth back when it was 35 bucks uh, 40 right. years ago. Right. But, uh, but uh, so it has a fixed value and uh, like having a, a scale that's accurate. And uh, and uh, when you have an unstable dollar, it's like an unstable watch. Imagine baking a cake with a floating uh, watch. Right. It says uh, bake the batter 30 minutes. You have to figure out of those nominal minutes, inflation-adjusted minutes. Is it a Mexican minute, a New York minute? <laughs> people, people, people would see how nuts. silly it is. Yeah. Why did Nixon do it? Why did Nixon take us off the gold standard? It was a sort of, a, as often happens in history, it wasn't a grand plan. They stumbled into it. One, during the 50s and 60s and 70s, 
they didn't understand how to manage a gold-based system, a gold uh, a gold standard. And so uh, they thought, oh, if uh, you know, we spend money in bases overseas, that'll undermine the gold standard. No. But anyway, they didn't know what they were doing. They, uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, when 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 you have stable money, uh, or when you have a gold standard, um, what it means is you can't uh, engage in uh, quantitative easing and uh, trying to debase your money to goose up your economy. But Keynesianism had such a great pull in these countries, they ended up putting in capital controls. Because <laughs> when the money was being debased, it would leave. Right. So they didn't know what they were doing. And when they blew it up in 1971, they sort of all thought, well, we'll come back with a new, a new fix. And uh, they ended up not doing so. And then you had the monetarists saying, oh, well, you don't need a gold standard. You just control the money supply, which you can't. Uh, because they don't understand money represents products and services like a when you a coat check in a restaurant coat check is a claim on the coat that right. you deposited money is a claim on products and services and so uh being a claim on products and services uh if you uh, uh try to print up more claims all you do is uh, uh create chaos why do we think we need a central bank? I mean, you know, I think it, it, it's such a standard and we, we put so much emphasis and, you know, on Ben Bernanke and all these guys and like, oh, we got it, we, everybody's waited on bated breath what they're going to do. Why do we – I mean, you'd ask somebody, you think it's part of the government, but it really isn't. Why do we put so much – why do we give them so much power? Well, originally it was supposed to be uh, the Federal Reserve sort of play the role the Bank of England did. did. And that is uh, be a lender of last resort when you have a financial panic. Uh, keep the currency uh, steady in value. And uh, and that was it. Uh, now it's become a credit allocator. They want to get their claws in more and more parts of the economy. So uh, it's like any organization. If left to its own devices, it will grow. Even if it has nothing to do, it will grow. Unless yeah. somebody stops it like weeds. <laughs> they will <laughs> right. grow unless you stop them. Right. Pick them out. And uh, that's what happened with the Fed. So the Fed uh, went to uh, talk about mission creep. <laughs> they yeah, they no went kidding. on with steroids. Well, like I said, it, it seems scary to me out there. This this book has provided me personally some solace that there are some, still some common sense solutions out there because it is if, – if you look at it from my perspective with you know barely a working man's knowledge of all these things, but I'm passionate – about free markets, capitalism, the, the country, the history of the country, the Constitution, all that stuff that I'm passionate about. And this book really did help me. I, I got to tell you, it, it helped me, gave me a little bit, of, a lot of hope, actually. And if, But I'm just not hopeful with the leadership that we have up there. And I guess, you know, you've been in this arena twice. And um, h- how do you feel? Are you hopeful with what you see on the uh, Republican side with, with how this is shaping out? Well, I hope that, uh, you know, there's some good ideas floating out there, and I hope with the rise of Donald Trump, uh, the what you might call the un-Trump candidates, <laughs> will uh, realize that attacking each other uh, is not going to work and that uh, you've got to come up with an agenda that is uh, exciting and uh, can uh, go against his. I mean, he proposes, a, has proposed, I don't know whether he's still doing it, a 45% tariff on stuff from China. Remember, a tariff is a tax. Yeah, that would be disastrous. And, uh, right? if you, 
you want to go to, uh, you know, struggling people to go shop at Walmart, suddenly find their prices going up uh, uh, by half or doubling, they're not going to be very happy. And more, more importantly, their standard of living is going to take a hit. You know, today I heard him, they asked him a question and, and he said, why is this economy been so bad? And he keeps going back saying it's because we've allowed China to do this. And that's all well and good, I guess. But I didn't hear, and I don't, I didn't hear him say, you know, it's been the policies of the last eight years that have really contributed to this disaster. It wasn't, hasn't been so much what China has done. Am I fair in that assessment? Yeah, uh, the Chinese have just had to sit back and let uh, our own economists and our uh, political leaders do the damage. Uh, and it started under George W. Bush this latest round, I meaning the 80s and 90s, after we uh, conquered the terrible inflation of the 1970s. We had uh, semi-monetary stability, uh, not by traditional standards, but uh, uh, by the standards of today, it wasn't too bad. Right. It was okay. Uh, then we went off the rails, starting under George W. Bush, when Treasury decided it wanted a weak dollar to stimulate exports and stimulate the economy. That led to the false boom in commodities. Oil went from about twenty twenty-five dollars a barrel to over a hundred dollars a barrel. We saw gold go from under three hundred dollars an ounce, reaching a high of one thousand nine hundred. Now it's about a little over twelve hundred. Uh, you, you saw all of this, and it's uh, now. Uh, the dollar is strengthened. The Fed didn't know why, but it's strengthened. It shows their incompetence. Uh, you you have a commodity collapse, which is uh, wreaking havoc on the world because uh, we're not growing. You know, in the 80s, oil went from $40 a barrel uh, down to a low of $10 a barrel, finally stabilized at 20 to 25 But even though Texas and other and the energy patch, not to mention agriculture, were severely impacted. Oh, yeah. Uh, the rest of the economy did roaringly well because we had the tax cuts, we were deregulating, we were having a, we had a strong foreign policy, confidence was high, innovation was flourishing, Silicon Valley became bywords for uh, innovation on a global scale. But today we're getting the the, the crash and uh, none of the growth. Yeah. So are you, are you ready to? Have you closer to endorsing somebody? Or are you gonna? Are you still? Playing the field. I'm still, uh, the, I'm still in the mode of the dating game. Yeah. Still, still, still trying to figure out who, who it might be. <laughs> well, I appreciate you writing this book. I really do, Obi, because it is, they are scary times. And I fluctuate back and forth, and I try to stay positive. I only, only try to sound, surround myself by positivity and common sense. And this book is definitely chock full of common sense. Um, well, job on, on, on writing this. And it comes out, comes out at a perfect time. I just hope whoever gets into that White House pulls you aside and, and hopefully you're working somehow behind the scenes and getting some of these people to think some of this through. Well, I'll continue to be an agitator. So yeah. <laughs> they'll hear, hear from me one way or the other. How can people <laughs> How can people get more in touch? I mean, you're an easy man to find. Just Google Steve Forbes. But how can people reach out to you, learn more about the book, and uh, how can they participate and help you more? Uh, well, they can, uh, they can uh, obviously uh, get a hold of the book, buy the book. We also have a website, uh, AHGO, Americans for Hope, Growth, and Opportunity, AHGO, uh, .us, that they can go to. And they can also find my uh, writings on Forbes.com. Well, a big fan, Mr. Forbes. And again, thank you for coming back on the show. It's been about three years since you were here last time, and it, it was an honor wow. and a pleasure <laughs> to have you on this show. And uh, as always, you have a welcome home here 
Um, if you need me to, to support and advocate anything that you're doing, uh, consider me uh, part of your army. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Mr. Forbes, have a great day, and, and we'll talk soon. I hope so. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Bye, Steve. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.